this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. Have you ever stopped to think about why someone might want to buy your company? Yeah, it could be a great product that you built. Maybe you've got a great customer list. You might have a great location with a lot of traffic. One of the other reasons you might want to consider is to get a hold of your people. It's called an acquihire, where a company buys another business primarily just to get the people on board. My next guest, Chris Rizendis, lived that. He started a company called Impact Labs, and Dan Harple of Context Labs was got wind of what Chris was doing, and they met, and they realized they you know, had a lot in common and a lot of basically shared values, and Dan looked at Chris's business as a way to get some people that had some experience in what's called the Internet of Things, IoT, which is a hot and emerging segment and where employees can be very hard to get. Things to listen for in this episode, I really loved about 40 minutes into the episode where Chris talks about how an acquihire is done, in particular how it's valued. And I loved his description of the cost per head. I also like the way he talks about protecting yourself in an acquihire because clearly the buyer could simply contact your employees directly. And so Chris gives some good pro tips on how to avoid that scenario. Lots of good stuff in this interview with Chris Resendiz. Chris Resendez, welcome to Build Cell Radio. Good morning. Thanks for having me. You're in Bedford, Massachusetts. And we were talking before the, uh, the, the we hit record here. I've never actually been to Bedford. Of course, I've been to Boston, but Never been to Bedford. Is is it like a hotbed of entrepreneurship? Is it is it a real tech center or not? So New Bedford, Massachusetts is about an hour south of Boston. It's on the coastline, uh, otherwise known as South Coast or Buzzards Bay. We can see the islands, the Elizabethans and Martha's Vineyard. Uh, the great thing about New Bedford is that it um, last year, and well, 2016 and 17, received a number of firsts. It was uh, the fastest decline in unemployment across the country, according to the United States Department of Labor. Wow. It was, uh, for the 17th year in a row, the number one uh, commercial fishing port in North America by value of the fresh um, seafood landed. It was voted by the United States Council of Mayors to be the most climate responsive and climate resilient mid-sized city in America. It was voted uh, the most uh, creative uh, economy in the state of Massachusetts by a number of mass nonprofits and NGOs. Dude, you sound and like a mayor. It, right? um, <laughs> well, I mean, he, here's the thing, man. It, it, it really is important for folks to know that the challenges and opportunities the planet faces right now are everywhere. So leadership in helping solve some of those problems or access some of those op- opportunities is going to come from anywhere. And while folks think of New Bedford as a, a, a fishing port or an old industrial town, what they don't see is that there is a ton of innovation going on in a place like New Bedford, and there's a ton of innovation going on, I would say, in hundreds, if not thousands, of you know, tier two, tier three cities and towns across North America. And you, know, you, you find what you look for. And if you're looking for small and mid-sized enterprises that practice what we call this conservation-oriented approach to, to capitalism, in other words, nothing can be wasted, no dollar, no cycle, no opportunity, no shift then you'll find it. You'll find great innovators and great entrepreneurs everywhere because they are everywhere. Love it. So I'd love to dig more into conservation, but let's talk about Impact Labs for a second. What sure. was, what was the, the genesis? What was the idea that you were chasing? Here? How did this business start? The business started um, in, a place in, in, in Cambridge in the United Kingdom, which many people think is sort of the archetype of uh, the redeveloping market inside an advanced economy. What the hell did I just say? Like, like a mill town, an industrial town, a steel town, or a coal town that found a way to become relevant in digital 
uh, and or in services in the late 20th and early 21st century, Cambridge, the United Kingdom. I'm at a conference with a bunch of folks, and the conversation was around the next great wave of digital, and folks were calling it the Internet of Things, or this idea that you would put little sensors everywhere, anywhere where you needed to know the location, the state, the status of an asset, of a team, of inventory, of some work environment, or some work in process, if you couldn't put boots on the ground and eyes on the team, the asset, the inventory, well, maybe you could put a sensor there. That's the Internet of Things. And as we got talking about it in the in this city of Cambridge in the United Kingdom, what we all came to the conclusion of was we weren't sure that the big technology companies or the big finance companies or the big Internet companies really understood the true value of what the Internet of Things could bring to a small and mid-sized business. Everyone had been talking about big stuff. They'd been talking about huge programs, global programs. And what we thought would be really powerful was what if we actually took this bleeding edge tech and we sort of repositioned it and repackaged it and presented it to the small and mid-sized market, to the small and mid-sized business and told them, look, you don't have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars. You don't need to add two or three staff and you can own or control your own data. Um, we thought it could be compelling. So we created Impact Labs with the express purpose of bringing Fortune 5000 together with subject matter experts from the physical world to build teams to help small and mid-sized businesses understand that they too could instrument their physical worlds with intention and intelligence for profit and sustainability, and they didn't have to wait. And that's what Impact Labs did. We worked with hundreds of small and mid-sized businesses to bring to them the most stable, operationally relevant, and affordable technologies we could find. And we ran pilots in the field and programs in the field, and we taught lots of small and mid-sized business markets what they could do with IoT. So what's the business or model? Internet of Things. Yeah, what's the business model? How did, how did you guys make money? So the way we made money was, first and foremost, we presented ourselves to the Fortune 5000, industrial, technical, and others, to say, look, there's a massive market opportunity in SMB. You may or may not be focusing on it. You may or may not have a channel to access it. You may or may not even understand what it's all about. Let us do the work for you. We positioned ourselves sort of as force recon. We wouldn't just go and observe. That's recon. But we would actually engage force. And we would share what we learned with the Fortune 5000. We would tell them who made the decisions? What are on the minds of the small and mid-sized business owners? Go beyond the what keeps you up at night question. Go in the field. We say go in the diesel, in the dirt, the salt and the mud, out in the wind and the weather, and, and live with the small and mid-sized business owner and operator to understand what we needed to do to help them understand what Internet of Things could do for them. That value proposition resonated with the Fortune 5000, and they would essentially become annual subscribers to a service, which was us doing the work in the field, and then building databases that were like these repositories of intelligence about our experiences in the field. And they subscribed to those databases. They subscribed on an annual basis to becoming quote unquote sponsors of labs. That's the primary source of revenue. The secondary source was we became good enough at doing this work that we actually had small and mid-sized businesses start to ask us at labs if we could be their local systems integrator to deliver these programs or projects for a fee. So the second source of revenue was we started to actually roll out uh, programs that were funded by small and mid-sized businesses. Those are the two primary sources of revenue. We only had revenue for three years. Uh, we had other grant plans for revenue, but the two primary sources were big companies paying us to learn and small and mid-sized companies paying us to deploy. I guess I, I love the business model, by the way. So what proportion of your revenue was coming from the SMB owners directly versus the big companies when, by the time you sold the business? So the, so the SMB revenue as percentage of total was probably near zero in year one, and by year three, close to 20%. Got it. So let me understand, I'm, I'm struggling to get my head around why a big company, I, I understand why big companies want to understand the SMB market from a, from a research perspective. I'm trying to understand a practical example of why a big company would would study these SMBs. Can you give me like a, a real life example of, of what they would get out of that data? Sure. So one real life example and one that's fairly public on our website through video, through blog, et cetera, is Dell. Dell has been explicit. Um, can't say before they were private, but since they've been private, Dell and now Dell Technologies has been explicit about their 
their their need, their desire, their DNA to express itself not just in productivity and profitability and gap financial statistics, but Michael Dell himself and others at Dell, all the way down through Joyce Mullen and Andy Rhodes and others and Jason Shepard, all the folks that we've worked with have said, look, we have to have an impact. And the impact has to come, for example, in some of these United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. These are 17 goals that the United Nations and more and more investors, and maybe here's a great point for your audience, more and more sources of capital, whether they're VCs or private equity firms or whether they're lenders, are looking for businesses to invest in who can help them prove, help the lenders or investors prove that they're lending to or investing in businesses that are not only growing headcount or revenue or profit, but are also having an impact on one of these United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. For example, SDG 6 is about water. It's about ensuring that every person, every community in the world has clean, reliable, potable water. Dell was, and Dell still is, explicit about needing to be at the forefront of making sure that any of their stakeholders understand it is not just about money. It is not just about productivity. It absolutely has to be about these other measures of impact where we are making things, people, the environment, inequalities, anything that matters, quote unquote, we have to have an impact. And so that was one of the things that Impact Labs did. We measured every single pilot and every single program, every project, every installation against one of these United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So when we went on, say, a small nursery, and we went into their greenhouses, and we helped them understand exactly what's going on in the greenhouse, not just the entire greenhouse, but with little sensors to monitor temperature, humidity, and lumosity in multiple zones in one greenhouse, we were helping that greenhouse operator manage risk, not lose expensive seed, not lose expensive inventory, not lose precious revenue or precious profit, but also help them understand how they were able to conserve water. That's United Nations SDG 6. We did a lot of that work with Dell Gateways. So this is a place where Dell could learn about small and mid-sized businesses. They could learn about how to prove impact, not just operationally and financially, but also socially. And underneath all that, there were three very specific things that were causing problems for folks wanting to grow in uh, Internet of Things. One was commissioning in the field. Actually getting the sensors deployed and making sure that they were up and running cost-effectively is a real pain in the butt. We helped with that. The second one is what about data governance and privacy and security and who owns the data? There's a massive issue on the planet Earth around data governance and the GDPR that just came out of Europe and just everyone wanting to understand who owns, who controls. We did a lot of experimentation in that. And the third thing we worked on was how to get big data or ambient data or, quote, other data sources to wrap around these new sensors to create maximum value. So at the top, it was understanding SMBs. I would say right in the middle, it was about understanding impact, non-financial. And then way underneath that, sort of the gritty stuff was, how do you commission the stuff in the field? How do you ensure that the data is secure and privacy and governance are honored? And at the end of it, how do we make sure it's maximum value? So those would be three layers of value that we presented to companies such as Dell, um, who I think have been very successful taking the lessons learned with us and promoting them into other markets with other partners. So it sounds almost like, I mean, this stuff is, this is, this sounds really like bleeding edge work. The Internet of Things is still a, a relatively new acronym, a new concept. Um, it sounds almost like a bank hiring a cryptocurrency, you know, crack team that said, that, that, that almost kind of blindly swallows hard and says, look, just I want you to kind of feed me information about cryptocurrency. I'm not going to actually derive any immediate, like a change of business strategy based on this, but I'm going, this is like a think tank that I'm not going to be left behind. Like if I'm Dell. I think that there's. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I think there was probably some of that in the beginning, mm. but um, markets move fast, man. And. You know, year one was largely about that kind of think tank type of approach. Year two was, okay, let's get in the field and make sure we can pilot live in the field so that whatever we're talking about has more relevance to SMBs. And we can say, not only did the sensor work in a AAA rated commercial space with pure and clean power and pure and clean light and temperature controls and, you know, hard, hard wire, wireline connectivity, but Let's do it out in the austere environment where we can't control for wind and weather, where we may not have, maybe austere from a power perspective and where maybe the comms are uneven. 
And then by year three, it was, look, man, okay, we're proving points. Now we got to drive revenue. So to your point, I think it started that way, but it very, very quickly, I would say within the span of 18 or 21 or 24 months turned into, okay, the training wheels are off. Um, okay, we know how to ride this bike. Let's go get on a 10 speed and let's take, let's take the training wheels off. Let's get on a 10 speed and let's get out of the driveway and get on the street. And we needed to move very, very quickly as a team and understand that, holy cow, we're going from a place where schedules are soft, deliverables are in some cases unknown, um, and ROI is TBD to a place where, okay, we got to deliver against the schedule, against the budget, and specific ROI. We had to go from like zero to 100 in two years. How is this business capitalized? I mean, did you have venture capitalists or did you fund it yourself? It was self-funded. My wife and I had just enough to make a go of it uh, for those three years. And uh, we'd also done some other work uh, that was providing for some cushion or for some cash flow, but we did not have uh, any outside capital. And, um, you know, it was a little bit of a blessing for that, but uh, no, it was a, it was a self-capitalized and then it was a, uh, then it was sort of an ongoing, you know, revenue generating, wasn't excess cash flow, but we were able to pay the bills and we weren't, uh, didn't need to go into debt, but, um, we were looking at options, uh, hadn't gone too far into them, but it was just about the time we would probably take a look at another change in the model or we would take a look at some outside funding. Got it. And then what was the trigger that made you decide to sell? So, so we had spent about a year, I'd spent about a year learning about the Context Labs team and learning about Dan Harpel himself and his guys, you know, Gavin Nickel, who's the CTO, is a brilliant guy. And Kurt Warden, the chief of staff. So people uh, probably don't know what the context labs is. So maybe just yeah, talk so, about that. So, yeah. So, yeah. So we ended up selling the business to context labs, which is an innovation engine run by a guy named Dan Harple. who has got a probably not very well known, but, but really powerful story in technology as you know, the guy who ran the team inside one of his original companies that created the technology that became the real time streaming protocol standard. So anytime we're consuming media online, the fact that it it is synthesized and it is in quote real time such that we can consume it with joy. He wrote that uh, voice over IP, a standard came out of again in soft and one of Harple's creations. So this guy's a huge tech developer and innovator. Um, he runs this business called Context Labs with his team. And, and I think I came around to knowing that I would probably sell after I woke up one morning and I started thinking about run the scenario, right? I mean, as entrepreneurs and innovators, we have to create, and sometimes we have to, you know, we have to be really creative in our own mind, not just in PowerPoint decks and not just in the lab and in speeches and such, but, you know, by ourselves alone in the car, we really have to, we have to mess with our own heads. And so I messed with my own head and said, okay, you're going to kill the deal. You're going to go forward and you're not going to have access to Harple or the team at Context Labs or specifically the technology they built which is a, a trust platform, a digital trust platform called Immutably. You're going to go forward, Chris, with the team, and you're going to make all these dreams happen for all these people you've spoken to without Immutably. You're going to have to go figure out how to build the trust platform. And it scared me so much that I realized there was just no way that I could conceivably go forward and do the best against my dreams or my family's dreams or the people that I partnered with who had sponsored us or who had trusted us. I, it just it made no sense. I was not doing the best I could for my stakeholders if I walked away from Harple in context and this platform called Immutably. It was at that moment that I realized going forward without them and their technology and their team was really like the ugly plan B to going forward with them. Got it. Okay. So I want to back up because, I mean, you're running this company. Uh, things are going well. It's cash flowing. You're, you're, you've got clients like Dell. Things are good. Um, how did you first come to meet Dan and, and even start to contemplate the idea of maybe potentially partnering up with him? So we, common friends who knew that I was really passionate about deploying technology for good, for profit and good, we call it resilience. You know, so we would say, you know, this idea of going off and making money, that's great. Or this idea of going off and doing good is great. but haven't we arrived at a place in time on the planet Earth in this day and age with these tools and technologies and with you know, people changing the way they're thinking about things? Can't we do both? And so that was this TED talk that I did around the concept of and. You know, we can, in fact, 
deploy this technology and enhance the quality of employment opportunities or meaningful work for people, et cetera, et cetera, et all. And so I guess Harple had some of the same ideas and folks were saying, you need, you need to meet this guy. You need to talk to this guy. He says the same stuff you say. He's, you guys are singing off the same song shit. You guys need to get together. And that was, I don't know, almost, that was more than a year ago. And where it really came together was we were working in the Dakotas with um, deploying Internet of Things networks, training. Uh, local indigenous community, tribes. We worked with and for the Black Hills Tribal Council. We were out in the, we were out in the Oglala Aquifer in a place called Pine Ridge, where some of the worst socioeconomic or demographic indicators exist on a zip code basis in and around the Oglala Sioux Reservation. And we figured, hell, we're going to go there. You know, if we're all about bringing the bleeding edge to anybody, anywhere who's confronting or facing down a challenge, and we went to one of the hardest places in North America, and that's, that's the Oglala Reservation. At the same time, Harple and his teams were working with ranchers in that part of the world. And they were working to help people understand how they could use a certain set of digital technology to protect essentially natural resources, even as they tried to farm or ranch or explore for energy. You know, their concept was, look, you know, we can have energy and ranches and farms and not muck up the environment. Well, we were trying to do the same thing with the tribes. And I think that's where we started to talk. We had not just common vision or values or mission or interest, but we actually had common work in common environments with common clients and customers. And that's where we really started to see the power of us collaborating. And then it was a step at a time. Let's have this meeting. Let's disclose these things. Uh, I, I wouldn't say there was ever any pressure from a time basis. That could be a good thing or a bad thing. I think in our case, I can speak for me. I was definitely a little too laissez-faire about the schedule. Look, I had a business to run. It was self-funded. I really didn't want to go get outside capital. I had never intended on selling. And so it, it was never sort of on the front of my mind. What was on the front of my mind was, holy cow, working with that team, with their technology will be incredible. Let me make sure that I keep my eyes focused on what's in front of me and try to find time to work in the discussions with Harple and with Contact Labs. But that was probably reaching back into the earlier conversation that you and I were having is sometimes you just have to stop what you're doing in your day to day and, and really give one of these bluebird opportunities, one of these random sort of occurrences, a little bit more time, effort, and energy and thought because it might be more meaningful than you think it is. It may not be random. It may not be a distraction. You know, there may be a much bigger reason why this thing is in front of you. And, you know, go take the run, go take the walk, go meditate, go do yoga, do whatever you got to do to give that thing enough time so that you can really think through its implications. If I'd done that sooner, we probably would have done the deal sooner. But I think it was the fact that those guys have gone and made the same kind of personal investment in the Dakotas that we did that made me think, okay, these guys are real. They're not just talking the talk, they're walking the walk, they mean it. They're sacrificing every resource they have to invest in this opportunity to prove that we can make money and meaning if we rethink how we're going to deploy technology, why we're going to deploy it, who we're going to deploy it with, and ultimately at the end of, at the, end of the day, what we're going to do with the data that comes from it. So that's a long answer, but it, it really did take ripping through those layers to see that, you know, their crew was as committed to it as our crew was. How big a company is Impact Labs at this stage? So at that point, we probably had in any given day, you know, 10 or 12 people moving in and out of the office. Um, when we consummated the deal with Contact Labs, we brought seven full-time over and some others. So yeah, we were not a big company. We weren't, you know, we weren't even 10 full-time headcount. That's helpful. And in terms of the, the, Software you talked about the immutable. You call it immutable. Immutably, am I getting that correctly? The trust. Called, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's called immutably. It's a quote trust platform, and that's one of the key things that Context Labs had built that we didn't have. And most of our clients and sponsors and partners were kind of looking to us to help them identify or source or create. So help me understand immutably. So is there some sort of um, similar type? product out there that, that could help people get their head around what, what exactly this is? I mean, is this vaporware? Is this a real thing? Is it, is it a software no, stack? Like, a, what is it? No. So it, yeah. And you hit the nail on the head again. It's like, okay, you know, it wasn't just PowerPoint, the, you know, this, this thing called immutably 
uh, was real code uh, with some IP and with documentation. It had booked millions of dollars in business. It, they had billed millions of dollars against it. It has been deployed. It's real. The best way to describe it is it's a five-layer microservice stack that includes ingestion of any kind of existing data, which, by the way, is something the Internet of Things community, I think, had blown past. There hadn't been nearly as much time, effort, and attention paid to existing data. And so the lesson for the SMBs is if you have data, do not believe the hype that it only, it only has value for you uh, and, or that it only has value if it's smashed into some data lake with you know, petabytes or you know, zettabytes of other people's data. Small data has value. And, and, and the first thing about Immutably is that these guys understood that. They're like, hey, the first thing we got to do is we got to help the SMBs or we got to help Fortune 5000 or we got to help government entities. We got to help them get access to the existing data and create value from that, part one. Part two was proof. You know, can you, can you, can you attest to the identity of the sources of data? Um, and this is a big thing in tech today. It's part of cybersecurity, but it's identity. And so the second part of what these guys built was, again, proving to us that they weren't just walking the walk, they were talking the talk. You know, they had this second layer called ProofWorks, which was all about attesting to the identity of the source of data and then running cryptographic and mathematical proofs against the data to make sure that it was real and it was true and doing the same thing with the math that was behind the algorithms. In other words, saying, look, just because it's a good sensor giving me a good temperature reading doesn't mean that I can trust the sensor or that I can trust the data, that it hasn't been corrupted. The third thing, the big thing, blockchain, a ledger. These guys built a ledger in blockchain. They have their own IP-protected branded ledger called Scrivener, which does some really amazing things differently than other ledgers. But then the second thing they did in their ledger was say, look, we know other people are going to use other ledgers. We'll create an open API so that if someone wants to use one ledger or another ledger and not ours, that's cool. We'll work with it. So again, proving in their technology that they had this you know, clarity of vision that, look, there's not going to be one ledger. There's not going to be one blockchain. There might be hundreds or thousands. We've got to support them. Then the other layers were uh, uh, graph analytics, which is a little more complicated than some of the traditional analytics people are using, and then the ability to just create services. So it was a five-layer stack. The emphasis was on, hey, if you've got data, let's help you make use of it. Uh, let's make sure it can be trusted and verified. Let's make sure we can get it entered into a ledger, and then let's run it through whatever the best analytics or whatever the best applications are. And so there was a keen understanding of what the world needed, and there was a keen understanding that we could create value, but also the keen understanding that they weren't going to be the only solution in the world. And in order to make themselves more attractive to middle market or Fortune 5000, hey, look, man, you got to work well and play nice with others, too. That's what their immutably platform does. And they were aiming it at supply chains that are really complicated. Now, think about that for a minute. We're a little crew of 10. And a company that's got big, grand designs on helping to address complexity and risk and friction in supply chains thinks we have something to add. Well, maybe we do. And it begins with this idea that if you cannot trust the source of the data, then you cannot trust the data. If you cannot trust the data, then you cannot trust what the systems are telling you. If you cannot trust, you're not going to make the progress you need to make. But they had taken those lofty ideas and they made them real in code. And that was just, you know, that was mind blowing for us. It sounds fascinating. Um, it sounds a little bit Star Trek to me. I mean, like, it's amazing to think that, 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 that there's a business out there that does that, but it's, uh, it's obviously the way the world is going, right? They, you know, like the cryptocurrency seems to be a real thing. I'll, you know, um, the blockchain seems to be a real thing, or at least certainly a lot of people are investing and, and make believing it. What do they see in, in you? Like, it, it sounds like they built this platform, which was, you know, obviously very deep and rich in, in terms of its value. What do they see in the impact labs? Sure. Well, a couple of things. First is that we want to make sure that we just have one minor or major distinction that blockchain as an enabling technology is distinct from Bitcoin and or cryptocurrencies. That cryptocurrencies use blockchain to create their value proposition if there is one, but Blockchain is in many ways like the internet, and a cryptocurrency would be Yahoo. Yahoo's not the internet. Yahoo uses the internet. The cryptocurrency uses blockchain. And, and why blockchain is relevant for SMBs is this. We're literally 
teaching in many cases our clients and our customers that a, a blockchain ledger or distributed ledger technology doesn't have to mean it's a quote public ledger. And it doesn't have to mean that you have to suddenly have like random kids with excess compute cycles on their gaming consoles in Eastern Europe suddenly have access to some of your data. That's crazy. In the most conservative application, you take your blockchain ledger and you say, okay, I'm Tommy, Tommy's fish, and I've got two or three key suppliers upstream, and I've got two or three key partners and customers downstream, and the seven of us are going to create our own private ledger with seven entities that will all have a node or all have a server that is the ledger server, and we're just going to create a network of seven nodes. And so I want to be real clear to bring it down from Star Trek to something simpler. It's really just a way of saying, look, since we all trust each other already, let's create a ledger, uh, a distributed ledger, and let's all agree that we're all going to pay attention to each other's transactions and make sure that we all agree so we can remove friction, reduce cost, enhance our security as a team, but also give ourselves the ability to increase the value of our data in the event that we want to use it for something else. But I just want to get there first. Then the second thing is, what did they see? I think the most important thing is we have an amazing network. At Labs, we truly pursued collaboration through a multi-stakeholder network because our belief was you need the physical world subject matter experts, you need the digital experts, you need the local businesses, you need the big tech firms, you need the industrial firms. So we, we really did focus on this idea that it was going to be about physical world instrumentation, it was going to be about impact as well as the traditional productivity and profitability, that every small and mid-sized business would own or control their digital assets. In other words, if you're a farmer and you own or control or you are steward of that field, its soil and the water and the ambient environment, then you should, you should also be the steward, owner, controller of the data about the soil, about the microclimate, about the water. And so in being passionate about these ideas and being disciplined about trying to make progress against them, we built an amazing network of advisors, of partners, of subscribers, sponsors, clients, early stage companies. And we probably didn't get paid for the majority of the work we did, but because we led with giving, because we were clear about what we could do and could not do, we built an amazing network. I think after the true depth of shared vision and values and knowledge, number one, I think the second thing that context probably valued was the network. But we had a network of people who trusted us as knowing something and being prepared to contribute or collaborate on something. And probably the third thing was our, I would say, deep subject matter expertise on this thing called IoT specifically. Those are probably the three key things I think Context Labs saw in Impact Labs. With regards to the network, I mean, let me just push there a little bit because Dan sounds like a legend. Presumably, he, is. he could have picked up yep. the phone and called anyone in your network and built his own direct relationship. Why, why acquire Impact Labs for, for a network he could essentially build with one phone call? Well, I, I, one thing I will say is that there weren't a lot of there weren't a lot of people doing what we were doing. We were bringing those stakeholders together, multiple brands. So most incubators or accelerators were are really built around a single brand. Ours was multi-brand. Number one. Number two, they those incubators or accelerators tended to work in a laboratory environment, almost purely digital, not out in the field. We were obsessed with the field. And the third thing was, I think most of the incubators and accelerators, you know, three years ago, four years ago, five years ago, when we started, were not pushing as hard on impact metrics because, oh, that's social entrepreneurship or that's, you know, philanthropy or that's not real business. And today, or today it is one of the fastest growing sources of capital on the planet is impact investment funds that are looking for internal rate of return and return on invested capital, as well as some quantifiable performance against one of those impact metrics, one of those SDGs. That's the third thing where we were a little bit different. We were obsessed with, with helping any small or mid-sized business owner prove that they were having an impact so that when the time came, instead of just going to the traditional bank or the traditional VC or the traditional angel network, that they could literally present themselves to this rapidly growing network of impact investors. So if you're the nursery operator and all you're doing is enhancing productivity and and, and revenue and profitability, that's one thing. But what if you could do that and you could say, hey, and here's the impact I'm having on UN SDG 6 or water. Those three things mattered a lot. And those are three things that 
you'd be hard pressed to find in any one sort of incubator or accelerator. Two would be a rare find, but there just aren't that many that were doing all three so that we could present ourselves as having technical expertise, operational expertise, but then expertise against these emerging metrics that the financial community is racing toward today. I think that's why Harpel and Contact Labs chose us because we represented this unique combination of things that any one of which would have put an incubator or accelerator at risk, but we were, we were chasing all three. Love it. So how did, how did Dan raise the, the idea of an acquisition? You, you guys obviously had a meeting of the minds. How did it go from just a meeting of the minds to something more serious? Well, he's a pretty smart guy. He saw a bunch of stuff before I did. He's like, look, we should be working together. Because, uh, I mean, I want to quote him, but at one point he said, you, ha- you, you, just, you don't have anything uh, to offer people, to sell people, to deploy um, today. You know, you're, you guys are struggling with this idea of trust. Um, you're talking about farmers being able to own data, but how do you, how do you ensure that the data has value? It might have marketplace value conceptually, but if you cannot attest to its veracity, if you cannot attest to its source, then those farmers are going to have data that's worthless. So I would say he went to a place where, um, like all good business people, he just went right to the heart of the matter, which was, look, man, you should be working with us because you can then have the real solution to sell. Otherwise, you know, you're going to continue to struggle with this big fat hole in this stack or the stacks of the folks that you're working with. And then we went back and forth a little bit on what that might mean because I just wasn't looking to sell, wasn't prepared to sell. And from, from him suggesting that it became a series of conversations to figure out how we could come together in a deal whose terms would be acceptable to his side and acceptable to our side. And it took a little while, but we got there. So why not just license his platform? Well, I mean, we talked about that and his response was, look, man, no offense, but, um, we don't, you know, uh, time is the most precious commodity anyone has and not sure that we have all that much time to be supporting a licensing agreement with uh, you and your happy band of brothers and sisters down in New Bedford. We have much bigger fish to fry on the licensing front and we're just not there yet that we're looking for, you know, a team of 10 to license the technology to, so we could try to do something, but, you know, just not sure how much, you know, love, time and attention you're going to get from us. They, they were working with and still are with fortune you know, 5,500 And his response was, I just don't know that, I don't know you're going to be able to do what needs done. And I don't know that I'm going to have the cycles to service or support you. He said further to that, he's like, we really should be working together because the things we're going to be learning together, trading together, sharing together really should be done um, by teammates and not necessarily just by licensing partners. And so who was the first to, to raise the specter of an acquisition? That's a good question. I'm not sure. You know, part of it is language. It, it was probably me because, look, I, I'm not sure he was, by definition, looking to acquire everything that we did or had because I'm not sure he fully understood it. But I think it was probably me when I said, look, you know, I, I would love to work with you. We'd love to collaborate. If licensing is not part of the, you know, if, if, if you're really talking about us working together more closely, it would have to, it would have to be under sort of an acquisition. And so I was probably the one who brought it up first. Uh, in fact, I'm probably pretty sure of it. And uh, his response was, well, can't say we're looking to buy necessarily, but let's, let's talk. Let's see what comes of it. And look, that just speaks to him being you know, far more agile and quickly in real time than I was. But his response was, okay, if that, you know, tell me what you mean. And we started to talk. He has a philosophy. Bring a ball, kick a ball, don't kick your teammates. You know, that all this has to be fun. If it is going to be our passion, it is going to be our joy. It's going to be how we define ourselves. It's got to be fun. We can't do these great things out of anger. Uh, We have to do them out of love and out of joy. It will be hard. We will get ticked off. It's not going to be perfect. But if the the ultimate taproot of our energy isn't love, isn't positive, isn't play, isn't joy, it's not going to work. And so we started kicking a ball back and forth. Okay, so take me through the, the next level of conversation. So he's like, I'm not looking to acquire anybody, but, but, but if that's what you think, um, did you put terms together? Did you say, were you the first to sort of put together some sort of terms, price, whatever, or did he come forward first? Yeah, I put together sort of a 
it's sort of in my nature to, to try to empower other people. And so I sent some frameworks that had some valuation metrics that had some, just had a bunch of terms and considerations around, you know, what I thought the business might be worth and how that value might get expressed um, financially, uh, what I thought the business would be bringing, just, just re- really ran through what a bunch of different scenarios, at which point you know, he and his team have their models and methods because they've been doing this for a long time. And so once we got to home in on which of my sort of scenarios wouldn't work and which ones might, that's when you know, his team took over and said, look, we've got a standard methodology that we use. It seems like we've arrived at a place where it could work. And then his team went ahead and put together a couple of formal proposals. And that's what we ended up working off of was their framework, which included, um, you know, just a a number of methodologies and and ways to identify value and, and to try and uh, price value and make sure that, you know, the deal terms were fair and clear. Um, you know, it included, for example, you know, some cash, some earnout, some options, um, some variables. Um, but it was, you know, for me, I would say that the the valuation was close, and there was there was an alignment on valuation, and there was, you know, I had flexibility on terms, and so we were able to make it work. It's not as if you know it was the first offer that was accepted, or it didn't take ten, but there was a little back and forth around a couple of things, but. Um, and these are logical, rational guys. And, you know, what I'd say is the most important thing is, you know, somebody on the sell side is to be sober, um, be realistic, be reasonable. Um, don't succumb to the idea that you have to start high because they're going to start low. Yeah, there's some of that, but at the end of the day, you just got to make sure you understand what value did you really create? Who, who cares? How does that translate? And really don't get hung up on um, goodwill or some dream that you or your wife had when you started the business. You really have to very quickly get sober about what you created and what you didn't, where there's value, where there's not. And, you know, I just, I feel lucky that I'd been through a few hundred of these as an advisor and that, you know, we, my, my wife and I weren't all bound up in this idea that we had created the next, you know, greatest thing since sliced bread. We were we were really sober about what we thought we had and what we didn't have and how it fit and how it didn't fit and so, you know, the conversation really was was fairly I don't want to say clinical because it wasn't clinical but it was everyone was being realistic we had we were circumspect we were mature we were adult and yeah it wasn't you know it wasn't perfect and people weren't patting each other on the head or rubbing backs but yeah I don't think anyone had unrealistic expectations about, you know, what we were going to get or what they were going to give. If that makes sense. It, it does. Um, what did you think the com- your company was, regardless of, of, of what actually happened with Dan, because uh, I know we can't talk specifically about the valuation, but what, what's, what did you think the company was worth and how did you arrive at that? Well, so I had not really done a value, any kind of sort of valuation methodology on it because I wasn't really sure. I wasn't looking to sell it. And so I ran a bunch of different methodologies and, you know, we came up with numbers that, you know, on the low end were, you know, probably, you know, scratching a million or at the high end scratching five. And look, we ended up somewhere in between those two numbers. I don't want to go any further than that, but, um, you, you, there's so many methodologies. Yeah. So what, methodology, what, what methodologies did you use? Well, so we looked at a bunch of different methodologies, and I would say the one that arrived me at the probably the best, most reasonable estimate was the sort of the aqua hire model. Look, we didn't have any intellectual property. If you don't have IP, then you can throw a lot of you can throw a lot of uh, a lot of the valuation uh, valuation methodologies out the window. Number one. Number two. We didn't have, you know, five years of a track record of growth, top line, bottom line. So it was hard to use revenue basis and EBITDA basis. So throw that one out. And so we started looking at a bunch of different things. And what we ended up with was this kind of feels, looks kind of like an aqua hire. And so we looked at a bunch of different methodologies for how you value an aqua hire. And then I, I did the work of, you know, pre-discounting, uh, knowing that, okay, so we're in New Bedford, not Boston or Cambridge. So there's going to be a discount as you go from Boston, Cambridge to New Bedford. Got it. Um, 
we were a mix of personnel or pers- personnel or, or, or professional. We weren't all pure developers and we weren't all pure big bag carrying elephant killers. So we had to discount on that dimension. Um, we weren't or didn't have IP, weren't generating IP. So I had to take a number of realistic, sort of honest, self-effacing discount methodologies against an aqua hire method. And I think I came up with a place that felt reasonable. And, you know, they used their methodology and we ended up in the same ballpark. How do you value an aqua hire? I, I have no idea. So there are lots of different ways, but one way is you look at total headcount and then you get into full time and then you get into technical versus other degree to licensed professional versus other uh, versus the revenue generating uh, quota carrying folks versus quote other. And so, you know, you have different classes of personnel. Um, and depending on where you are in the market or the region or the country, you know, the, the, there's this sort of, you know, dollar per head. And, you know, if you're in Silicon Valley and you're in a hot segment and you are uh, in high demand and it's all technical people and there is IP, you can get close to 3 million a head. If you're in, you know, our kind of business, then you don't, you're not going to get a million ahead because a million ahead is for those companies that have some IP, that have a mix of financial performance, that have a mix of personnel. I mean, you know, there's some, you know, recently that came across the transom uh, here in the greater Boston market where, you know, one of the acquirers didn't quite come right out and say, all right, this is going to be an aqua hire. They didn't have to, but you know, you look at the numbers and 45 had count, the business was losing money. They had some IP, some revenue, but you know, they paid $50 million for a little bit of IP, a little bit of revenue and 45 head count. It isn't that hard for me knowing the business the way I do to suggest that they probably used an aqua hire method and they paid, you know, 1.1 million uh, blended for a bunch of people who had a mix of technical and financial and commercial skill set and experiences. And, you just, you just got to pay attention to why companies would buy other companies and what the potential methodology might be. But you got to look at how many people you got to look at what they're, what are they doing? What are they creating? What are they producing? And you got to be realistic about the discount method, which is, which is, you know, fairly typical, except I'm just not sure that most sellers go through the discounting process themselves and they should, because it was a great, it was a great sobering exercise for me. Great advice. So when you're talking to Dan and his team at Context Labs and you're into this this kind of acquisition discussion, ha- have they um, asked for access to your people? Are they are they interviewing your team? Yeah, so this is a place where they were incredibly sophisticated and sensitive and I would say human. And they said, look, you know, sometimes coming in and doing these interviews can be really disruptive. People all get on edge and, you know, is this an interview? And, and so they were very, very clear to say, look, let's make sure that we're all in agreement. Look, I was the single shareholder. Um, my wife and I had funded it. Um, we, there was no need for me to do very much talking to too many people inside the team until I was pretty sure that something was going to happen. Now, people had some suspicions, but we decided with the folks at Context Labs, look, let's go as far down the path as we can before we start to, you know, make people nervous, quote unquote. And so they were really sensitive about that. And then it was a question of, you know, it was really a discussion. It wasn't like they came and said, we have to talk to your people. They didn't do that. What they said was, let's talk about each of your people. If you're comfortable, send resumes, send CVs. If you're comfortable, Chris, send some, you know, thumbnail or profile or pricey, what you think of these people. Share with us, help us learn, help us understand. And then I had, gone through a bunch of meetings alone with Dan and his team. And, and where we got was, look, you know what? We'd really like to talk to these people. They're the core technology people on our team. They wanted to talk to them and get an understanding really of what they could do. You know, just because somebody says they can program in you know, Java or they can, you know, they can do machine learning in Python or they're a great UX designer. Look, you really have to have a technical person talk to a technical person to understand what's really there. And so we had those kinds of meetings. Uh, we did group meetings, which I thought was great. Um, and then we had meetings among the subject matter expert people and the people that worked in the field. And, and they had these, they were discussions. 
like, hey, look, this is something we want to do. We think it makes a ton of sense. Um, I think the decisions had already been made to do a deal. Um, and I think this was really like, hey, this is really, it's a little bit out of order, but you know, we just want to come in and learn about who you guys are so we can start the process of understanding how we're going to integrate and how this, uh, how Context Labs acquisition of Impact Labs may or may not affect our hiring plan. And putting it in that context made it, I think, safer for everyone, such that you know, if the deal did go south, then it would be easy for, for either side to say, look, it went south because you know, Chris couldn't come to terms. It didn't go south because of the team. So they were very, very clear. We trust that the team is there. We've seen the team in action. We've heard from others about the team. We've heard from you, Chris, about the team. Uh, we've been with the team on a few occasions. They were very clear to say, look, we're not interviewing the team to make sure we want to do the deal. We want to do the deal. We want to meet the team to, to understand, okay, what it's going to be like post close. So, so one thing I got meetings in our office. Yep. Sure. Sorry. Yeah, no, not at all. One thing I've, I've got to get my head around because I, I, I've never really, we never really had a discussion around aqua hires before. So this is really cool stuff. I love it. Um, okay. So let, just round numbers. And, and again, I, I don't, let's divorce this next segment from, from your company. Cause I, I realize we can't talk about it, but let's imagine we're talking about an aqua hire where the acquirer is contemplating paying a million dollars a head for a technical team, let's just say. And let's further say that that, that 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 technician, the person, the programmer on that team is earning a salary of $100,000 a year. So what is to stop an acquirer from going in diligence or pre, you know, pre-letter of intent, going, meeting with that the team and saying, look, I, I know you're making 100 grand with Chris, but come over and work for us and you'll make 200 grand. Now they bought that headcount for 20 cents on the dollar, essentially. Instead of paying a million dollars for that employee, they're, they're paying, to, well, their salary is 200 grand. Like, am I missing something? What's, how, do we, how do we avoid this, uh, you know, basically disintermediating you as the owner of the business? Sure. Well, a couple of things. The first is, uh, and you nailed it earlier, is you've got to protect yourself. So you don't just let a potential acquirer come in and meet your team and talk to your team and make those kinds of offers. But by the way, there's nothing stopping from a potential acquirer from going on LinkedIn or something going on some social media, but primarily LinkedIn at this point, and just directly going to someone who's, you know, portraying themselves as being the, you know, the, the director of systems engineering on your staff and going and poaching them point one. So, so the first point is if people are publicly available, they're publicly available. Number one, number two, um, when you start the process, you absolutely put pins in place and protections in place to suggest that, look, you know, in, in an explicit um, uh, clause in some kind of letter of intent is that, you know, they will, in fact, not uh, hire any of your people. Uh, if the deal goes south, that they will not hire your people uh, for a period of, you know, 12 months or 24 months, whatever it is, you can absolutely put those clauses in place and they are enforceable. And the third thing is, is that, in between those two, like people are going to be publicly available and you don't necessarily open the kimono. And while well, you've got this legal recourse in between that is, I think the business owner understanding who's on the team and why they're there and what keeps them there. And so there are lots of reasons why people stay with a small and mid-sized business and particularly the leader or the leadership there. And some of it's financial and some of it's cultural and some of it's operational and some of it's lifestyle. And there are all kinds of reasons. I think the key is for the business owner to understand who's on the team and why are they on the team and what keeps them coming in every day when it can be intense or it can be uncertain. Um, and, and so I hate to say it and it sounds Pollyanna-ish, but you make sure you know your team and what makes them tick and what motivates them and that you're feeding their motivation and not just their wallet or not just their ego or not just their um, chit sheet or whatever it is, that they're not just getting the certs and they're not just getting other forms of recognition, but really understanding who's on your team uh, will help you understand um, if any of them are at risk in these kinds of scenarios. So understand that they're public personalities, number one. Number two, at the other end of the spectrum, protect yourself legally before you start the process. And number three, really drive through the middle of that and understand who's on your team. And understand that if a deal goes south, some people who are not, I guess, all in post deal that doesn't happen, they, you might lose them. You might lose them to the potential acquirer or you might lose them to the experience of 
hey, man, Tommy was going to sell the business. He never told me that. He did all this without me knowing or I'm kind of rambling now, but, but the key is to understand who your people are and you wrap around that one and understanding that they are free agents. And number two, that you will have legal recourse. But if you can stay in the middle, then you're probably going to be better off, if that makes sense. It does, for sure, for sure. So in your case, you got to some number with with Dan and, and a team at Context Labs. Um, you mentioned there was there was a portion in cash, a portion in earnout, and and options. Maybe can you talk a little bit about uh, and again for people to to sort of get a sense of what their deal might look like. I mean, how was how are some of those things structured in terms of? Uh, either proportions of the deal that were in cash or earnout, or maybe what the earnout was tied to. It sounds like uh, um, you guys were really looking to bring the businesses together. So I'd be curious to know how the earnout was structured, um, because I'm assuming Impact Labs' business model will and has changed dramatically um, as being part of Context Labs. Am I getting that right? Yeah. So you're yeah. So you're you're right about all that. Um, so here's what I'll say is that I think one of the most important things that, that doesn't get spoken about enough is that risk, I think, is really what keeps most small mid-sized business owners up at night, quote unquote. I think risk is the thing that you know, most of these new digital methodologies are attacking. You know, convenience is a feature. Profit is a tool. Resilience is the killer app. And the, and the, 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 the baseline for becoming a more resilient business is to, is to be able to manage risk better. And so in any kind of deal like this, on the buy side or the sell side, the key is to understand the risk. And as a seller, what's the risk? Well, the risk is that um, the, the merger doesn't work out and that, it, and, and that you know, too soon you, know, you find yourself or your team looking for a job. I mean, look, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really sober about this. You, you know, the, the biggest risk was, okay, you do the deal and yeah, you get some of that cash and, and some of the cash goes in the bank and that's good. But you know, if everything else is, is on the, is on the come or on the forward, you know, whether it's earnouts or variable compensation, or if it's options and all, whatever these things are that are part of the deal. And, and by the way, it could be anything. You could get stock grants, you could get stock options, you could get stock warrants. Um, you could get um, access to royalties, or you could get access to cash flow. There are all kinds of ways that creative buyers can finance the acquisition and incent the team to stay on. But I think in many cases, and folks don't like talking about it, and there's a limit to what I can talk about, but you know, the vast majority of deals that get done aren't pure cash. And in, in most cases, the vast majority of deals that get done, get done at a lower valuation and with less cash trading hands on closing and just get over it, fellas. I mean, ladies, just get over you know, Ladies and gentlemen, get over it. Uh, it, it just, you know, there are hundreds, thousands of deals get done every month and some of them have no cash. Some of them have no enterprise value. Some of them have, you know, it, it really is a mechanism for people to clean up balance sheets and for businesses to move forward. So with that said, what I'm comfortable saying is that you should, you should understand what your interest is truly in working with that team and their technology and their operations in their markets. Like you really need to ask yourself, am I selling because I need an exit or am I selling because this is a strategic step forward? I want to be clear. We didn't sell because we needed an exit. We sold because it was the best strategic step forward. So we were all in, I was all in. And I made sure with my team, once we were able to share with them, look, I'm doing this because I think this is the best thing I can do with my time against the missions that I've defined for myself, with my family, and with you guys as the team. I think this is the best thing for us going forward. And so in that sense, it wasn't hard for me personally to accept a term that, you know, had lots of, you know, on the come or lots of go forward with the earnouts or the payouts and the options and such, because I was going that way anyway. For those of you that are looking for an, an acquisition or an exit to be, you know, your way to move on uh, and not forward, then it can be really frustrating. Why? Because there's another side that's trying to manage their risk as well. And that's the buyer. Um, buyers are not liars. Buyers are experienced. Buyers are, they're, they're wizened and they're jaded and they're circumspect too. And one of the last things they want to do is buy a company that's a little company whose primary asset is its people and what, and who they know and what they do and how they do it. And, you know, find out 
after plunking down, you know, 80 or 90 or, you know, plunking down a big load of cash that, you know, the two or three people that were the straws that stirred the drink got the cash and now it's hard to get their attention. And I don't want to cast dispersions on any of the sellers, but it, it doesn't matter who you are. If you get a number that's large enough that it's meaningful for you and your family for that given year or decade, then you have to just own who you are as a human, that it will be more than a distraction. It'll be your opportunity to, to do some things, to get ahead, to set some things straight, um, to buy some time, some flexibility. There's all kinds of stuff that that pile will do for you and your family. And you got to understand that the people on the other side of the table understand that too, because they might've been through it. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say most deals will have a mix of terms with some cash right now and some cash over time. And that cash over time could be for any number of contributions or reasons. And that the equity opportunities could come in, as I mentioned, grants or options or warrants. Some could be awarded and invest immediately. Some could be awarded and invest over time. I think the seller has to really understand, are they, are they looking to move forward? Or are they looking to move on? If you're looking to move on, then you want to have as much cash as possible up front and as few strings attached to the payouts or the earnouts or the options awards going forward because there's a difference between moving forward and moving on. It's a really, really good point and, and well said. So in your case, um, you were looking to move forward, not on, and so took some cash, Correct. but also an earnout piece and some options, which ties you to Context Labs. And so Dan can feel confident that he's got you kind of his hooks in you for a while, which I'm sure he's happy about. What about the other? Well, listen, man, if, yeah, I mean, if, yeah, if, if I walk, it's not a major financial hit for a guy like Harple. If I walk, it's a major strategic hit. It's a time hit. It's like, you know, look, guys like Harple don't have to do this stuff. Right. You know, he's, he's in no way, shape or form, you know, pressed on any dimension, but, but he's, he's got a vision and he's got values. He's on a mission and we happen to be aligned on it. So his thing is, look, it would be incredible if this happens the way we hope it'll be one of the most interesting stories of our lives. And for the lives of lots of people that we can impact, if it doesn't happen, well, I mean, it sucks, but you know, no one's going to bleed or die. Yeah. So in terms of how they structured the hire for your other, the other, you mentioned there were seven of you that moved over to context. How did they, retain how did they structure it so that they would retain those guys was there a, a practical beyond the shared values that you have yeah so so anytime you're in a anytime you're in an early stage company um the way you retain people is with the mission um and with the team and the technologies and the tools and the methods for the experience and then you know everyone is participating in the value that gets created going forward Got it. So they've got some sort of long-term participation in, in, in it as well. That makes a ton of yeah, sense. Yeah. I mean, it, look, yeah. I mean, everyone that's, everyone that's committed to the, to the mission needs to be read into the results of the proceeds or the largest that the mission creates for the team. And so you know, everyone will be participating in the value that gets created, uh, that gets distributed. The team will be part of that distribution. Got it. Got it. That's helpful for sure. Um, it's an amazing story, Chris. Where is the best place for people to, if they wanted to say hi, reach out on social media, what, what's the what's the best place to find you? Or do you want to send people to a website? Where, where should people find you? Yeah, so I, I would say, look, if, if folks want to learn about um, Context Labs, go to contextlabs.com. You will learn about um, what distributed ledger technologies are supposed to do. Um, I'm really proud of the of, of this immutably platform that these guys built, number one. Number two, if you want to see how we're taking immutably into the environment or into climate resilience or into uh, non-traditional value creation spaces, then go to sphericalanalytics.io, which is the subsidiary that we created uh, post-merger. So after Context Labs acquired Impact Labs, uh, Context Labs then launched this company called Spherical Analytics, which takes Internet of Things and blockchain and the Immutably platform um, in a partnership with the, the Jeremy and Hanalore uh, Trust for the Environment, or Jeremy Grantham and the Grantham Trust, and the Environmental Defense Fund, and said, hey, look, we're going to put DLT or distributed ledger technology to be of service to the environment. 
So you can visit us there if you want to see what we're doing on, on, a, on, a, on an impact basis, or you can visit Context Labs and see what we're doing with some of the most complex and at-risk supply chains in the world. And just read out, reach out to me on social. I'm happy to help, uh, especially to bring these technologies and these experiences to the SMB market because we know you folks are creating value. You folks are creating meaningful work opportunities for families everywhere. We're passionate about how distributed ledger technology can, in fact, redistribute um, power in supply chains. And uh, that's really what we're all about, is redistributing the power, the leverage on a merit basis, and get away from this dangerous hyper-concentration, if that makes sense. It does. Uh, Chris, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Look forward to speaking again soon. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.